Hi, I'm your host, Alan Cowley, and welcome to another Invested Investor podcast. I'm delighted to invite Zoe Pedden this week. Zoe is an award-winning tech entrepreneur, social accelerator committee member, and venture capital investment manager. With a focus on transformational, ready-to-scale ventures, Zoe's work with Ananda Impact Ventures has transitioned her from founder to investor and also guest lecturer at Cass Business School. So there's your introduction. Thanks for joining us, Zoe. Let's start with your entrepreneurial stuff. So what was your influence for getting into founding and and the startup life? Oh, thanks, Alan. That was a great (laughs) intro. I like that one. I'm going to write that one down. Um, So, oh God, how did it all start? I mean, my dad was an entrepreneur, um, so in the building trade. Um, So everyone around me had always been self-employed. Um, but they were very keen for me actually to get a job in a bank or as a nurse or something that was stable because it was a very unstable environment to, to, to grow up in. Um, but I kind of, I, I liked their freedom. I liked the fact that they were on bosses. So um, I guess that was a young, at a young age in influence. Um, and then after uni, I got a job in publishing. And after about 10 years doing that, I was kind of getting an itch and I thought, oh, it's that itch. I think I want to start my own my own business. I want to do my own thing. I think I'm, I'm ready. Um, but I hadn't come up with the idea. I started to do um, a part-time MBA, hoping that it would influence me a little bit more. I started doing business models, coming up with ideas. And then by that point, I was working in a charity and the charity had this language program of sign language and symbols and they were used in books and on VHS videos. And it was an amazing language program that over 100,000 people were using across the UK with learning disabilities to help them with their communication. So it was like 30 years old at the time, um, really well used. The BBC were using it, the most popular program on CBeebies, used this language program um, with a character called Mr. Tumble. So if anybody's got any kids under the age of three, you'll know about Mr. Tumble and something special. So it was an amazing language program that had a load of impact, but it wasn't digitized in any way. So I just saw this opportunity when the iPad was released, it was a bigger screen, and this would be great for the, the symbols to be used. Um, and I thought, oh, I think this has got some legs to be digitized, digitize this language program. And I think I'm ready um, to do something for myself as well. And I'd got into a financial position where I could afford to do that. Um, so I handed in my notice which was a very long notice period. I think I did four or five months notice because I was a senior manager at the charity by then. And they kind of said, okay, you need to provide evidence that by digitizing our language program, you're not going to damage any children because it's the iPads were unknown entities at the time. Everybody thought, who is going to use an iPad? They're just like a, an overgrown phone. Yeah. Or a small um, laptop. And yeah, so it's like... You know, what's the point? No one saw the point of an iPad. But I could see for the use with these children, they needed a bigger screen. They were already using a touchscreen interfaces with um, assistive technology anyway. But these devices cost between five and ten thousand pound. So when the iPad came out and they were, I think, three two nine in the UK, you're totally changing an entire industry to be able to put this assistive technology on a device that's like 
seven or eight percent of the price of everything else that's out there at the time. So and you could sell it as software and you could sell it through iTunes. So um, I got on one of the first, well, there was no actual iPads in the UK at the time. So I went to New York, got on a plane to get one of the first iPads and spent the, the next 12 months demonstrating to the charity. Sorry, you, you got on a plane to go and buy one of the first iPads. Did you queue up and yeah, outside the yeah, Apple yeah, store? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was in the queue, actually. Yeah, I remember being in that queue. I'd never been to New York, so it was like my first time as well. So it was really exciting. I'm in this queue on Fifth Avenue at the store, and there was such a frenzy everywhere. And everyone was going, how many are you buying? And I'd paid for the, the flight and there was the hotel. I could only afford to get one. <laughs> you know, I was in the queue to get one. And everyone else was buying four or five or what was the maximum that you could do. But the, I got, the, got this photo somewhere of me going like this with the, the <laughs> iPad and kissing the, the box. You know, it was, it was quite a special moment. And uh, yeah, it was a really special moment because I brought that iPad back, then got to build it with my co-founder, who's a software developer. Um, and then once I'd started to demonstrate working with speech and language therapists, with teachers, and going out into schools and uh, working with families, I filmed a lot of families. I started filming um, right at the beginning, which was just totally the way to do it. I mean, YouTube wasn't as big then. This is like 2010. Um, but I knew it was all about stories and I wanted to create stories of these people. I thought it was about time that these families and these teachers and the social workers had their stories told about the work they were doing with these children and adults with learning disabilities and, and the difference technology can make, but also people. It's very much about people. Technology is the tool when you're working with people with disabilities and it's very much about the people and how they decide to apply it. So I wanted their story. So it was very, very emotional. Yeah. So I did lots of interviews like this, trying to, you know, film the anger of the parents and the frustration around the, their everyday life and how communication with their child was so important to them and the difference that a tool like this could make in their lives. And just, the, you know, when they've heard their child communicate either through sign language or through speech for the first time using something that you've built. It's an absolutely incredible story. And to capture all this on film was what I did. And I made all these different stories about different people and showed them to the charity. And they're like, OK, you've got enough evidence now. We'll grant you the license. So this was within, we built the app, put everything into it for 12 months, and we still didn't have a license to use the language programme. So that was one of the first challenges of like, oh, my God, we spent all our money, all our time over the last 12 months. And we don't know whether we'll be able to release it because the charity were holding off for some evidence. And we got the evidence. They were happy and they granted the license. So it's like, so that was like the first hurdle. And the app was released in May 2011. And I think by the September, I was starting to run out of money. I started to apply for jobs. We'd got, we'd sold. Is it just two of you still? Yeah, at this point? two of yeah. us. We'd sold apps from the first day. So the very first day of release, we sold. Um, that was because all the parents that we'd filmed, they'd started talking about what the project they were involved in and how excited they were. Um, we released these videos on YouTube. Everybody started to share them. Um, yeah, and the mums did an amazing job of, of spreading the word. But yeah, I was still running out of money. And I needed to be able to cover the bills. 
Um, so I started applying for jobs and I remember I got down to the last two for a, C, um, a deputy CEO job of a big charity. So it was like major hard work to get there. And I remember the day they told me I hadn't got it. I was crestfallen. It was a part-time job, which would have been perfect to earn some money while my choice pad, you know, got a bit bigger and I didn't get it. And I was like, what am I going to do? I don't know how I'm going to be able to afford to, to pay the rent. And I'd started to pitch um, at competitions. Um, Tech Hub had just been set up. Oh, yeah. I think I did the second product demo day where you didn't pitch, you, you talked about your product. And Mike Butcher was comparing. Um, I'd been reading TechCrunch for the previous two years, so since about 2009, watching seed camp videos on how to pitch because there were no other accelerators at the time in the UK. Seed camp had just started. And I'd watched how they did it, how they told their story. And I'd practiced in the mirror with my hairbrush, um, just practicing doing these three-minute pitches. And I got selected to pitch at the, the Tech Hub product demo, like evening. And it was the first time. And I was so nervous, I dressed in like a suit because I didn't know what else you wore <laughs> coming into London because I lived in the suburbs then. And uh, Mike Butcher was there and he gave me the mic, but I didn't know how to hold one. And he said, and he said, stop, Zoe, we, we can't hear you. And so I had to stop. And I was so nervous anyway doing this pitch. And he said, hold it like a rock star. So I was literally <laughs> holding it upside down like this, just talking about what I was trying to do. And then I played one of my videos and showed this um, little boy, Finn, who was three at the time, I think maybe two and a half, speaking and signing and, um, and speaking to his mum and his mum just explaining how important it is to be able to hear him speak like this and, and how it's not fair, how frustrated he gets, even though his legs don't work properly. The most frustrated bit is not his movement, it's his lack of ability to communicate and how this was, is changing his life. And then afterwards, I put it down and everyone was like, round of applause and stuff. And the amount of people that came up to me afterwards just to shake my hand and say, this is what I think should be seen. And then I did a, a second one, um, a demo, like a tech pitch um, 4.5, which I think is still running. It's an event. And it was there was no theme. They just accepted my pitch. I said, well, you know, gave them my deck. And oh, there was 10 of us. And I think I came second in the votes. And in that audience of that second pitch was a guy from Unlimited. And okay, he yeah. emailed me two or three days after I got that no as the from that job that I wanted um, to say, will you submit? We've got a new competition. It's called Big Vent Challenge. And we haven't got anybody like you applying. We want, we think tech is the future, you know, for impact. And we don't have anybody with, you know, doing an app or anything like you're doing. Um, and I said, I looked at the form and it was massive. And they said, you want three years of cash flow forecast? My app's like weeks old. Um, you know, this is going a bit far and I don't have the time. It's 48 hours. And he said, I know it's 48 hours. Don't worry about the cash flow forecast. Just put in your video, say what you're trying to do and, and tell them how many sales that you've got so far. And I did. And then they said, right, you're through to the next round. And I was like, no way. Um, you know, it was, it was just like, okay, okay. And then had to be interviewed and did a dragon's den type thing. 
the Dragon's Den type thing. It was this, so emotional. Was this an investment committee for Unlimited that you did? Yeah, which so is it was full for this circle, program. Which is full circle, and we'll get to that later because you're now on that yeah, committee. Yeah, but yeah, yeah sorry, yeah. Carry, on, carry on. So um, they had some really big people on that investment committee, including one of the founders of Pret a Manger. And he, I think he must have had a long day because he wasn't particularly in a good mood when he got to me. <laughs> And the tech failed. Um, the big projector that I was trying to hook my laptop right. in to show didn't work. So I had to get eight people looking at my laptop and showing. And remember, videos were my power, my emotion. Yeah. And so it was really hard for them to see, you know, that the story that I was trying to tell. And the, the guy from pret a I think his name's Sinclair, tore me to shreds. And it was, he was correct with hindsight, what he said, because I was like, I'm going to do the UK, then I'm going to go to the US. You know, it's all these numbers. They were the full hockey well, stick the hockey thing. Stick just and up. he, he <laughs> shook, it, shook it apart and said, you know, hardly anything translates to the, to the US. I think you need to remove all those numbers. And I was totally shook down. And I think it was just the whole nerves of it. I was, and, but other people around the table could see I was just petrified of everything. And they were very encouraging to me and very polite. And they were just really nice. But I thought I'd absolutely ruined it again. First of all, I didn't get the money to, to help, you know, to, to live, to get this job. And then I was at the final stage and there was like a thousand applicants and 16 were going to be chosen and you'd get £25,000 grant. So it meant the difference to me, like nothing on earth, and I thought I'd ruined it. So I went out in tears, called my co-founder, said I've messed it up. I was just absolutely crucified at the final stage. And, yeah, my friends were great, but I was so, so very upset because there was so much on the line. And then I remember maybe a week later, I was in bed feeling just rotten, and I got a phone call. And it was um, the director of ventures from Unlimited. And she rang me and she said, Zoe, you've been selected. I wanted to call you. And I was like, what, 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 what? <laughs> I can still remember where I was. I was still in bed in my pajamas. Um, and just, yeah, it changed everything. Because that money, £25,000 was so much to me. It meant that I could afford to still do this. And I got um, a three-year support program from and a development manager and my development manager actually works for Ananda. He's my boss where I work now. No. <laughs> so this is like the full journey of many things here. Yeah. Hopefully this, you know, this makes some sense of how it all goes round in a circle. So I got this 25000 got a development manager, and I spent that money um, on a lot of fuel. I'm not very environmentally <laughs> friendly, but I did 66 visits. Um, in six months to groups of minimum six of teachers, parents and social workers. So I went to schools mostly, in lunch times, after school, in the breaks, pitching. So you so you were driving to, say, I a drove town to the mall. and then just pinpoint and then go yeah. to the town the next yeah, day? Yeah, 66 did. visits. So I offered, and the reason I could do this, I had the charity that I licensed, the language program from that I used to work for, the Magton Charity, have a network of a thousand tutors of the language program. So through the charity, I asked them to set, you know, I was going to set up meetings with a minimum of six people that were relevant to be in there. And I spent my entire Christmas of that year, 2011, booking all these meetings in until like May or June. 
So every week I was going doing two or three up and down the motorways in Scotland, went to Northern Ireland. I'd never been to Northern Ireland before. Um, all over the Northwest, Wales, Southwest, one speeding ticket, I remember. <laughs> that was in the Southwest. I did that much mileage, but that's where it all went. And by that, I managed to build up the, you know, all the revenue starting to come into the, to the company. And then when that 25000 was nearly spent at the end of May in 2012, I had applied for this accelerator program called Wira, which is Telefonica. And I thought, maybe they'll let me in because it's telecommunications and I do communications. <laughs> maybe there's some link somewhere along those lines. And I was getting pretty good at my pitch now, still extremely nervous. Um, I remember applying and I think a thousand people applied again for that. And they let 16 in again. So it was similar ratio to this, unlimited. This is one Piccadilly Circus. Yeah, thing, yeah. yeah. So um, at that point, they were in Tottenham Court Road, Kappa Street, and it was the first time they'd run it. So I was very good at firsts. I was the first of a, a lot of things. So, and yeah, I got selected to pitch at the final day, um, really nervous. And then they did this big, it was a whole entire day of pitching. And then they had like pumping music at the end and we were all there and they called out the names one by one of who'd got through. So wow. they'd said there was going to be, I think there was 20 places, and they said, we've only found 16. So you're doing the maths and the probability. Sounds a bit like X Factor. Yeah, it really was, <laughs> and there's pumping music. And then they start, you know, and the first one is the second one. By the time you'd got to the sixth or the seventh, you, you know, the colour is draining out <laughs> of your face because your probability of being selected has just gone right down. And I was either 9 or 11 but it was long enough to feel really sick. <laughs> um, and everyone around me was going, so are you okay? Uh, particularly the people who knew was afterwards said, God, you look really sick. I wanted to tell you not to worry because you were through, but I couldn't. Um, and, and when they called me and said, come up and get you, you know, your prize and get your photo. I was just like, just get me up and get me out. You know, <laughs> it just went up really quick. <laughs> Smile, photo, off. It's like, Phew. And after that, it was just like a whirlwind. Wira was incredible. I made some of the best friends that, are, you know, that are still my best friends now. Um, eventually, they got another three companies in. So it was 19 of us in there for over eight months. And it was like how I'd wished university had been. Um, all the, the peer support, the ups and downs, the, the stresses. I mean, at the end of it, I managed to raise angel investment and then further investment from the VCs. But that was where I came out of a bedroom and into like how a real startup is run, being immersed into this environment at Wira. That, that's really interesting that you've, you've brought that up, actually. That you've talked about kind of the stresses that you went through almost and, and, and obviously... Um, the different accelerators that you went for and you went for that but do you think that those realities that you've just been talking about are portrayed well in in society about the startup like the journey that an entrepreneur or entrepreneurs need to go through to get to the point where you were the way where I know some people are very lucky and they and they have a great tech product or whatever but do you think the realities of it because that sounds pretty Hard work, stressful. Yeah, running um, out of money. Yeah, exactly. Touching yeah. on the point of like bankruptcy and not getting a job and all these kind of things that play on your mindset. Do you think, do you think that's understood? 
Um, I don't think it's talked about often enough. I think it's talked about more now because everyone talks about mental health a, a lot more these days. But definitely at the time, it wasn't part of the, the narrative. I always used to wonder, how is everyone affording to do this? Because, you know, if you... I had friends who were designers, so they could do gigs, you know, little bits of jobs, and software developers who could pick up additional money. I didn't know what I was then. I, I was a product developer. There were no part-time jobs. You know, I couldn't do anything. I didn't have anything. I thought I, you know, I couldn't articulate myself in a skill to be able to hire myself out for a few hours. I, you know, no consultancy. Or, I wasn't a finance person. I couldn't do someone's accounts. So I, I didn't have any other income. And I think that's one of the most stressful things. And if I'd been able to talk to myself as a younger person, I would have said, okay, well, you just build a skill, just anything where you can earn some money on the side because it's going to hold you in good stead. Um, I mean, I've been able to do it now, but at that point, didn't, I didn't feel like I had anything that I could sell. Yeah. And that was one of the most difficult things. That's, that's an interesting point there, because some people say, you know, you should have come from a corporate background, maybe, so you understand that life before coming an entrepreneur. But that's really interesting to say, learn something that you can use as your becoming an entrepreneur in those first few years yeah, yeah i haven't heard that before that's really it's interesting like kind of yeah just have some income coming in to support you because depending on your business model but most businesses take a long time to take off yeah. the ground <laughs> so you're gonna have to live off something in between time so um so you talked about um getting to the point of bootstrapping your life let alone the business the business is running out of money and you don't have a job that risk at appetite keep on going I know you managed to get onto an accelerator but that's something that a lot of people don't have um and they a lot of people aren't able to um you know live off of money or whatever it is they're living off so what do you how well one why do you think you've got that risk appetite and how would you suggest other people that have a great idea but don't quite have the risk appetite how, how would you suggest they kind of push through that god I mean the reason why I think I did it is I had, I felt at that point, gosh, I had no alternative. I was hell-bent, hell-bent is the word, on making this happen. I had given up so much. There are alternatives, but that's... <laughs> I couldn't see it. I'd given up so much. I had, I felt I had literally nothing left to lose. When you don't have anything to lose, then your risk appetite's very different. I had nothing left. Personal life was a shambles. Absolutely. So, and I'd, it used to be good. I'd, I'd lost everything on that side. And yeah, I had nothing left. So it's kamikaze, I guess kamikaze. you could call it. Kamikaze. Yeah, I had but, nothing left. But, but uh, some people would still retract from that and go back to the, the charity job and then settle back into that and try and build their personal life or, you know, the, the stuff they might have lost. But there's still a drive there. And maybe that's just because you're very driven. But... Yeah, I mean, I think my mum used to say, oh, you're very determined. And all the teachers <laughs> would describe me as conscientious and determined at school. Um, I just, yeah, I don't know. Um, being my bonnet, I just, I'm an extremely determined person. Um, yeah, when I look back, it's like, oh, God, how... <laughs> How on earth did I do that? So it's very hard for me to look back and, and comment on it still. I still haven't taken it all in. Um, 
There you it go. was just there's yeah. a platform for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was just I was relentless. Yeah. I had nothing left to lose, so I was going going to hit myself into a wall or whatever. This was it. Um, but I could also feel around me, you know, I had these little, having the unlimited support, when you win things like that, it's like you're not on your own anymore. So little, like, little tiny things of support where you win stuff, you're like, okay, maybe I'm not mental. Um, and also doing particularly what my choice pad was, when I was really, really low and I'd be like, what have I done to my life? I'd get a phone call from um, parents asking about something they didn't know how to do something on the app and they you know I'd swing it round and go they were frustrated and I'd, I'd listen to what the issue was and I said okay yeah we can we can start to rebuild that in a certain way I just need to raise some more money first but in the meantime this is a workaround that you can do and I listened to what they actually wanted to do which could be done more practically not just with the technology and then they tell me their their story of what you know of their life and the, the problems that their, their kid has and what they were using my choice pad for and how it actually changed everything. And that's why they were so frustrated. They couldn't do this one thing because they were using it every day and it was a godsend. And, you know, it's the first time that they were speaking to their kids. So they wanted it to do more. And I'd be like, oh, well, this, okay, you know, I'm doing something. We've started on this journey. I've got to keep doing this because people need it. And there's no substitute. There was no alternative. So it's, I guess, it's that extra little bit. Yeah. And the speech and language therapists I was working with, you know, stopped. They said, don't pay me until you've got any money, Zoe. I understand what it's like, but just keep going. I know it's really, really hard, but they were older than me. It's going to get better, they'd <laughs> say. But you know, just knowing that I had these people who would, you know, ring me up and check on me, um, family, friends, people I was working with, just to keep motivating me, but particularly the, the customers, just incredible, the mums particularly, um, just rallied round and would, would tell everyone about the product and just like, you know, this is Zoe, she's doing this, let's help her. And just that, I guess, yeah. that's the extra. But Deter um, determination. doesn't give you like the, the money to, to pay the bills, <laughs> but it's the, the crazy determination to take it to, you know, depletion of all savings till right to the end. Yeah, no. <laughs> determination, support, but it sounds like as well the social impact, which we'll, yeah. we'll get on to um, in a minute with Ananda. Um, before we do move on to the investment side, um, uh, the last thing we heard was kind of Wayra, where you've just signed on to Wayra. Mm. Let's hear a bit, just kind of um, a little bit, obviously you grew the business, and but there's a really interesting part about you selling the business and then what happened in the subsequent years after that. Yeah. Because we were chatting about this before and I don't want to ruin it for the listeners. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it grew to a certain point. And I guess when you the, the issue is when you take venture capital money, it needs to grow fast. And there's always going to be those that you put the money in and it doesn't grow fast enough for VC. And my choice pad was one of those. It just didn't um, yeah, it didn't grow at the rate that was required for that amount of money. So, but it was a good business. So it was sold on and then I managed to buy the assets back um, a couple of years ago and now it's, it's being entirely rebuilt. Um, it's, it still grows. It will never be like a VC class type company, but it's a healthy company with a very steady set of, of customers that keep growing, that are extremely loyal 
And yeah, I'm now applying all my money back into it once again <laughs> to get it. It almost feels, my choice pad feels like um, my first car, if you ever feel that way about a car. Um, so you've got to service it. You know, it needs looking after. A piece of tech does. So some of this code that's in my choice pad, um, it's nearly 10 years old. So it needs to be rebuilt from the ground up because 10 years of code is a lot of mix in yeah. there. So it's being totally rebuilt at the moment. It's, still, it's obviously still out there being sold, but um, I'm excited to see what it's going to look like in February, March when it, it comes out with its, its new look. Shiny. It's all new and shiny <laughs> under the hood. The customers will only notice a few tiny things, but for my peace of mind, the technical architecture will be brand shiny, new, ready and fit for the next 10 years as an app. And uh, with some new features that I think the customers are going to fall in love with again and hopefully we'll get more customers as well. And it continues to be so. It's still mine. It's been through a whole cycle of being someone else's and then now it's back mine mm -hmm. again. And uh, now I love my choice pad. And it's my responsibility probably for the rest of my life mm -hmm. as to what happens to it. It's your, so, it's your, like you say, it's your first car, it's your baby, yeah, it's your yeah, it's thing that's got to keep on going, exactly. Yeah. And that's my steady state, my choice pad now, financially, that allows me to take risks with lots of other things. Yeah. So other ventures, I've, I've set up um, Iris Speaks, which is online speech and language therapy. I have a team of speech and language therapists who provide out-of-hours support um, doing speech and language therapy. So that's fantastic and yeah, it's enabled me to do more on the investment side. Yeah. Giving you your segue, Alan. <laughs> well, that was great timing. <laughs> Didn't even need to talk about the evidence. Although there is Zobi One as well. Oh, Zobi One is like my holding company. So oh, my okay. choice pads within there. I've worked with some other charities, including Autistica, to build um, an anxiety app for people with um, autism. So little projects on the side that, you know, I can use my experiences to help other people. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and we won't talk in too much detail about Star Wars, otherwise this podcast will just go in a completely different <laughs> direction. Um, all right, so let's, like you said, let's move on to uh, the investment side. Um, you are the investment manager yes. at uh, Ananda yes. Impact Ventures. What does Ananda do? What sort of businesses and what kind of impact are you trying to make? Okay, the spiel on Ananda. Yeah. So Ananda is a pan-European venture capital fund, 10 years old on its third fund. So it does late seed and series A investments. Um, typical first ticket is one to two million. And um, we can invest up to seven and a half million in any company. So most of the team is in Munich and there's 2.1 of us. <laughs> so somebody who works one day a week in, in the London office, which we're sat in now, yeah. which is small, but smart. Um, my choice of design in this room. <laughs> I was able to furnish it. So, yeah, it kind of represents me. Yeah. Um, and it's been a gradual move over to Ananda. Um, when I exited Insane Logic, they asked me to become a venture partner. So that's the kind of job where somebody's experienced, um, you know, running their own company. They asked them to come back, provide the network, help them source help them with some of their companies in their portfolio. So it's like a couple of days a month type thing. That grew from a couple of days a month um, to last year, they asked me to do two days a week. 
And now I'm almost full time from September. So it really, it's been both sides of us have been checking each other out, whether it's something they wanted to invest in me more, whether I could make that transition from entrepreneur to investor. And for me, it was like, um, you know, venture capital was not on my career trajectory or plan. But, you know, I've always been interested in the financial side. And yeah, so I've kind of come round to it. And I think it suits me where I am now. And I think think everybody has different stages in their life for different things. You know, the 100-year life and all that. Um, My first 10 years was product development and corporates. The next 10 years, entrepreneur. Perhaps the next 10 years are in venture capital. No idea what the next 30 or 40 beyond are. What what actually do you enjoy or excite you about VC then? I guess I enjoy the fact that it's not so long ago that I was an entrepreneur, so I can still tap into my mentality, the why I'm making certain decisions, which for pure investors are sometimes entrepreneurs come across as quite crazy. Um, or unpredictable or erratic. Um, I think if you understand what's going on in their life at that time and those pressures, like I described before, they are making decisions with a very different context to an investor. And it's understanding why they're making the decisions and um, putting that into play. And when there is negotiation to be had, to have that understanding. So I enjoy having that insight now. I know that's not always going to be the way. The more I am an investor, the more removed I will come from that. I I enjoy the the buzz and the energy that you get when you meet entrepreneurs. Apparently, I've still got lots of buzz and energy too. (laughs) So when other investors meet me, they come away like buzzing. Um, You're still an entrepreneur though. Yeah, yeah, I guess I still do that too. Um, Yeah, and I'm actually enjoying, because my background is health, education, and social care. So 20 years in those sectors, selling and building. And, you know, they're they're hard sectors. So I enjoy having that background to fall upon. But Ananda give me the, they don't hold my reins too tight. So I get to look at cybersecurity. I get to look at fintech. I get to look at earth science. You know, all these things that I've read about and, you know, I touch upon. I get to research and then speak to all these people who are like, this is their domain and their passion. And it becomes my passion as well. I mean, yeah, construction. I mean, my dad used to work in that, finding more about what's going on in that industry at the moment. And, yeah, um, aviation and shipping, all these environmental impact things that you can, you know, what's going on in that world? And... Being, you know, I feel really lucky to be involved with Ananda because it feels a lot of the rest of the investment world is suddenly starting to pick up on impact investing. It's becoming more mainstream. It's becoming a factor in everyday life as to what food people eat, what clothes people buy and where people want to see their pensions being, you know, invested in as well. So I feel I'm in the the thick of it, which, you know, there can't be any better place, can there? No, no, I don't think so. Um, what about the actual um, uh, process that you take as an investment manager? Um, you know, spotting the gap in the market, um, the, the risk appetite of, a, of an entrepreneur, whether or not they're right fit, you know, have they got the drive for it? How, obviously you've been there, so you've, you can hopefully spot it in yourself, but how do you spot it in people that aren't quite like you or anything like that? How do you kind of... 
Oh, it's a real mix. I mean, there's no one way. And I think all investors will say that. Um, so I have multiple heads with multiple <laughs> decisions, you know, different types. Um, I, I hopefully, uh, you know, I, I look for diversity. I will probably over-index on socioeconomic background. Um, the more someone has had to fight uh, whether that's being an immigrant in this country or through, you know, being working class, um, I'm going to favour them a little bit more because I like a bit of grit in an entrepreneur. I think it, it, a lot of it's about resilience, as you just heard from my experience. Yeah. If it didn't have that, I wouldn't be sat here now. So I like a fighter. Anyone who's going to fall over at the first hurdle, you don't want to put their money behind them um, and someone else's money at that too, not just yours. Yeah. Um, so a fight, I'm going to over-index on that. Um, I will, obviously there's those that come in at Series A, you've kind of known them around for a while. Um, you know, with me being on the scene for 10 years, I will know most of those people coming through and around on the Series A or my network will. So you, that tends to be looking at the metrics, looking at the team, they're more fully formed and what you can add to that. So that's a different kind of investing uh, the, the seed and the, the late seed, um, it's a combination of that one day I can be looking at the market so I can have a thesis and I'm looking, okay, I want to find something in cybersecurity um, that's going to have some big social impact because we haven't got anything like that in the portfolio. I, can, I think it will really add something to it and diversify our risk as investors as well within the portfolio. Um, so I'll go out and look for what's out there and then I will look at what stage everyone's at and then decide upon which is the one I think is the better deal for the returns that I could possibly get. So that's more of a mechanical thesis-driven approach. And then there's all my friends and network referring things to me, yeah. which is totally throws the rest of it out <laughs> of the window. And that's the spontaneity and, and how can you react to this and what's going on in the market. And that's the bit where you need to be careful about the sheep thing as an yeah. investor because you're getting on it because other people are on it. And that, in one way, de-risks your investment. So that's the enticement and that's where the sheep mentality of investors comes in. Oh, such and such is getting on. They've got 10 million to spend. That'll match our, you know, seven and a half. So we won't be alone in the next round when things don't work out, which is the normal way. Um, so, and so there's an element of truth in that but it's almost factoring in the bit where you, you need to go beyond that just because someone else is going in, it doesn't necessarily mean that's the right thing to do and that's the strength of your conviction as an individual investor and as a team of investors too because remember, I'm not alone. Yeah. I think there's, there's seven of us all together and we'll all talk to each other even though they're in Munich and they'll you know, take apart our sheep mentality. So what, have you looked at this? Yeah. And you know, and then that's why not being alone is good and why I prefer to work as a team when making these investment decisions. So. Um, I don't know how much you're allowed to give away, but do, when you put forward a company to be invested in, if, uh, if one person out of the seven you just spoke of says no, is that a concrete no? Wow, I haven't been involved in enough where it's been like there's only been one. In certain cases, yeah, it's going to be very difficult, depending on who that is, yeah. to get something over the line. Um, it's but is that rare. a good thing, though? 
the, at least one person within your team is saying no? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there's always a lot of no's. And <laughs> you, you, you have to do quite a lot. It starts with no. It yeah. never starts with yes. <laughs> um, which is good because it makes you question everything that you're doing. And, you know, I'm, I'm learning to be a, a good investor. Um, so I need those no's. I need them to come back at me and say, no, this is the reason, no, unless you could demonstrate this. So with the, with the entrepreneur, if I can't work on a particular thing, like you see a lot of early ones um, coming out, spinning out products from consultancies. Are they just a consultancy or is this is a product? Where's the product roadmap? So demonstrate that to me. You know, absolute sensible stuff. Or, for instance, back on the German deal, a lot of the time I'll go, this is great for Germany. This won't translate to the UK and the US, and that's where I'll come back yeah. on the German team. Whereas, you know, your markets are entirely different to the way they're structured. Um, look at that valuation. Is it a good valuation if it's just going to be Germany only? So, you know, I've got my little bit too that yeah, I can yeah. give back that on. Must, that must be fascinating to see that, actually, the difference between the companies even, let alone the markets and the yeah. industries. And look, it's kind of nice to have that stretch across, you know, Europe as well, this understanding of the different markets. Yeah. And, you know, is this a US play? Or can this, because our strength is in Europe, can this play towards Europe? And can, can the Germans, you know, the German team help if we invest in something in the UK? Can they help them with the market in Germany? Okay. And that's you know, obviously one of our USPs as a Munich-based VC, you know, spreading across Europe. So. Um, well, let's not talk about Europe in the sense that everyone wants to probably not hear about it. But <laughs> in terms of the government, actually... Um, so something that um, we had a ch chat about before, and it'd be great to hear your view on it for the listeners, is scaling and this government push to scale businesses and reach the heights of your tech giants in Silicon Valley and, and whatnot. What are your thoughts on this and, and how do you think the pressure of scaling is kind of impacting startups in this country? There's, there's, well, there's, there's different ways you can look at it. I understand the message to get more scaling from a market's perspective because if you look at the stage that mo you see most UK exits, it's before they become really big. So I think there's a frustration um, that the people acquiring us, you know, uh, uh, Asian or American competitors coming in and we don't, we're not doing it the other way around. Because the, the bigger we are, the more taxation that we're doing, more corporation tax that we're paying, um, and the, the more people that we're employing as well. Um, so it's definitely healthy from a government perspective to have some of these really big companies. Um, from an entrepreneur's perspective, um, it's going to be really unusual for you to survive as the CEO in a company like that. Um, so it depends what kind of company you want to have. Um, I think if you're okay with someone else coming in after five years or so as the CEO, and you can go off to the side and be the chief innovation officer. That's what normally happens <laughs> to us, especially all the product ones. Um, and that's fine. Um, but it, it, what kind of journey do you want to have? Uh, I think there's different types of entrepreneurs out there for, for different kinds of companies, and that's all fine. Do you think that um, there's a mentality difference, though? So I, I presume and the UK government is looking at these US companies and, the, and Asian companies are scaling. 
do you think we have a mentality within our entrepreneurs and our startup ecosystem whereby I don't actually really mind about being a hundred million pound company. I'm quite happy to settle at 20, 30 million and sell out or, you know. You... I think, I think um, some of the older ones will want the really big ones. If you've been through it a few times, the crazy serial entrepreneurs, you keep doing it again and again and again. You're either going to go one way where you go, lifestyle, I, you know, I don't want to put this pressure on me. Or, you know, you go the sociopath route where it's and there's plenty of us and I say us it's us um that are on that that want to go big uh, mega is the only way so yeah I think there's certainly people out there with the appetite yeah um and I think it comes when you've done it a few times as well you get a hunger you've got the networks there's always going to be those who will stick the neck out and do it so yeah I think it's just there's more Americans yeah. Um, you know, numbers-wise, right. yeah. we can't fight that one. Yeah. We'll, we'll try. Um, but no, there's, there's more of them. But no, there's definitely the appetite here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's definitely enough crazy people to want to be the next Elon Musk. Yeah, it's just, but think about his trajectory and what happened to him. He had a lot of money. We need some really big exits. So those people that do sell to the Chinese, to the Japanese, to the Americans, then need to go back in do it again and risk it all because that's how it's all done so you've got to be crazy enough and there's got to be enough of them and have their circles so they all support each other in doing that and invest in each other as well um, you know paypal mafia again over here then that's going to work you've seen it a little bit in scandinavia so the clano um the founders there are all putting their money into very interesting things yeah so th it's starting to happen and there's some of the, the Klarno founders are putting their money into impact stuff. So, yeah, it can happen in many, many different ways. Big, big, massive ambitions, but they need some billion, you know, pound exits. Yeah. And then you're going to see more of them doing it and not selling out. Yeah. They'll stick because they'll put their own money in and not rely on investors. No, so. And then just keep that cycle going. Yeah. I guess the US just started maybe a little bit before us and obviously are just bigger. Yeah, bigger need some really, really big ones and then need to go back in and do it again. Yeah. Okay, so let's, let's, um, let's just move on to um, talk about kind of how you give back. So you are, like we said at the beginning, you're in, on the investment committee of Unlimited um, and you're also a guest lecturer at the Cass Business School. Why, why, what's driven you to, to want to spin it around and, and give back in that way well the unlimited one's really obvious i think i'm <laughs> the biggest promoter of them um the amount of times i've told what unlimited did for me um you know to so many people i mean they they changed my life you know that that's the easiest way of looking at it it's, it's a sliding doors moment that phone call in bed in the pajamas it could have gone one way or the other and it went the other and i'm here so um, for that, I will be forever grateful for. And, you know, I, I do talks a lot of the time and always mention Unlimited. So when they asked me to be on the investment committee for Thrive, I was like, yeah. <laughs> because just to, to, the, the privilege of being on that other side when everything that they did, you know, they took a chance on me. Mm. And it was a really difficult time. You know, those three years, um, they were there for me personally as well. You know, when you're, the early stage of entrepreneurship is quite a fragile one. The ups and downs are quite horrendous, and um, they were there throughout that whole time. So, yeah, easy, easy 
decision to spend time with Unlimited. Yeah. Um, Cass, that actually, that opportunity came through a friend that I met in Wyra. So that group of mates that are going to be my, my startup mates forever, um, they went on to build startups that are still going strong now. Some of them didn't work out, then other people got jobs. And one of them got a job as, and she's head of entrepreneurship at Cass Business School. And she said, um, I'd like to get some real entrepreneurs, you know, teaching um, to level up the, the academics that we've got on a new program, a master's in entrepreneurship. Will you come in and, and speak to the professor who's designing the course? And I said, I can, but I've got no teaching experience. <laughs> All I can talk about is what I don't like because I've done an MBA and I know how I didn't like being taught and what I found useless on an MBA and what I found useful and the things that I think should be taught if you're going to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. So I said that and they said, yeah, and they just threw me in a classroom. I had to write my own program. <laughs> I was terrified. 70 kids. Well, not kids, they're in like mid-20s. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I almost did it like a startup. I kind of planned it out. But at the end of each lesson, I'd get feedback. And so I'd adjust the program for the next week based on that feedback. So it was almost like you had a full iteration cycle to find out what people want to be taught or how and the techniques that they want to do. They want to do groups. Do they want to do presentations? You know, so it was like finding out everything. So the first year was really quite tricky. Second year, more polished. Third year, that was good. Yeah, nailed it, (laughs) nailed it. And so I've been teaching customer development. So getting your first sales, market research for the last three years. And this year I'm teaching raising finance. Now that it fits with my new role as an investor. But I said, if I'm going to teach this one, I don't want it to just be all about VC because yeah. I think that's an unhealthy approach. I think that you can have different types of business and all the different types are fine, right. but there's different financing for different, you know, those businesses. So it's being aware of what those are and listening, you know, getting other entrepreneurs in to talk about their stories, crowdfunding, um, getting some angel investors in, you know, what they look for. I can obviously cover the venture capital stuff personally. And then about you know, having side businesses and how you can actually earn money while building a business so that you can maintain the lifestyle of an entrepreneur um, beyond ramen noodles and, you know, (laughs) and and pay the rent and actually live healthily. The the, the best one I heard about this is actually a couple of, a couple of recordings ago, um, a guy in Ireland, Ronan, um, his, his company's to do with salons but he needed to go back and find some money, like yourself, needed to get to that point. So he went and worked in a salon, mm-hmm. earned his money, got his, did right. his market yeah. research yeah. And, his, and his money at the same time. No, um, that's good. Let's talk about the future. Mm-hmm. What excites you about the future and what, what's the plan? You, you talked about your 10-year cycles. We're in the middle of the VC at the moment. You only next? just really started the VC started, one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not that old <laughs> yet. Uh, I think I've still got to learn a lot to learn about the venture capital industry. I think itself, it's going through a lot of change. So I'm kind of glad to be on that wave of, of change. Um, the impact investing world too is, is rapidly moving. Lots of mainstream investors are moving into that space. It's, it's fantastic, fantastic as an impact investor and for the entrepreneurs. And I feel like I'm seeing where you know, talking to lots of other investors, meeting them, seeing where their appetites are, 
you can start to feel how you can whip up around between you when you see a good entrepreneur. You know, I could say, okay, I've, I'm, you know, I want to go in on this one, get on the phone, start to bring other investors in, um, shorten that time span for them to raise because it, ta- it takes them off sales. Yeah. So I'm starting to understand how this industry works and and what it can be. And I think the uh, VCs get a lot of criticism. Uh, very easy to, to criticize one and because there's lots of pompous people out there you know it's all very power play um but i i actually see how they can be a positive thing too in society and uh, i want to be in that circle of people like the, the new breed of vc where we think ethically about where we invest and how we invest how we treat founders um how those founders treat their teams and just think about the, the full externalities of venture capital and funding to have less negative externalities in, in what it does and look at it as, as a more holistic approach. Um, well, that's a load of mumbo-jumbo, it sounds like, but I think there's a lot of negative things that have come out of venture capital in the past and I don't think it necessarily needs to be that way. I think we don't need to compromise on returns, but I think a more balanced approach to how we invest needs to be looked at rather than these just these billion dollar exits. Yeah. I think um, some more, and I think um, Ananda are not the only ones who are taking a more balanced approach. I think a lot of the people are looking at their portfolio and what they invest in a lot more carefully now. So I think that's going to be a lot more healthy VC, you know, coming in the future, which um, you know, I'm, I'm really happy to be involved in and, and see where it all goes. Yeah. It's all change. All change. Well, there's change, but there's also my choice pad, which you're still yeah. keeping on going yeah. and growing. And in the show notes of this, we'll we'll let the let the listeners um, be able to go and have a look at my my choice pad and and, and follow you into next year. Um, so it's been absolutely fascinating, um, and it's and it, it's it's something that you touched on a few points in this podcast that we haven't touched on before and I appreciate that um, massively and um, all the best for the future thank you thanks Alan thanks for listening to another Investor Investor podcast you can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website investorinvestor.com or via a number of online podcast platforms and be sure to follow us on Twitter LinkedIn and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting and insightful content.